0: Mark chapter three verses twenty to thirty-five. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, "He is out of his mind." And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, "He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons." And he called them to him and said to them in parables, "How can Satan cast out Satan?" But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Let's uh, take a second and pray. If you'll please join me, let's ask God to uh, help us understand this part of his word rightly. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you now again and ask that you would help us as we continue to make our way through this one book in the Bible, The Life and Works of Jesus of Nazareth, um, recorded for us by this man, Mark, some 2,000 years ago. Father, we ask that You would help us to not just believe in some intellectual way that these things are true and that they're historical facts, but also on top of that to believe that they're meaningful, that they are a representation of you breaking into our world, to our stories, to our lives, and seeking to bring us healing, seeking to make us whole, seeking to forgive us for our sin and to bring us with you into the kingdom of God. Lord, no matter what we're facing tonight, no matter what we've had going on in our lives this weekend, no matter where we find ourselves spiritually or emotionally, if we're skeptical, if we're sad, or if we're sober tonight, Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe and to see Jesus clearly. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been for at Christchurch before, you've probably heard me talk about one of my favorite authors. His name is C.S. Lewis. He's a 20th century British literary uh, studies guy and author, and one of his most famous books is a book called Mere Christianity that was published in the mid-20th century, and if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian or if you want to understand more about what the basis of Christianity is, the basics of Christianity, that's one of the best books you could read. In one of the early chapters in that book, C.S. Lewis makes a famous argument for Jesus being who he says he was. He says that really there's only three options when it comes to Jesus. He is either the Lord, which is what he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic, a crazy person, or he is a liar. He's a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. And part of what Lewis is doing in that really fascinating analogy and insight is attempting to help us understand that really when you read the Bible... And particularly when you read the Gospels, it's not so much, oftentimes, that you're reading the Bible as much as the Bible's reading you. You know, in a sense, the Bible is always trying to press and push you to decide how you're going to respond to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that we see on every page, particularly in a book like Mark. And as we've been going through this gospel for the past couple of weeks, almost every week we see in some way or another Jesus pressing us as the Holy Spirit works through this ancient book called the Bible, Jesus pressing us to decide what we're going to think about him. And so I want to just warn you here at the outset tonight that that's what he's up to here again. He wants you to deal with, with what he claims to be, with who he claims to be. And he wants you to respond to him, even if you are from the most religious background you could possibly imagine. Because it's very, very common in a place like suburban San Antonio that you are and that people are using religion not to go to Jesus, but actually to run from Jesus. Maybe you've used religion and the idea of being sort of just a generally good person and nice and conservative and you give two thumbs up to Jesus to avoid really having to decide if what he says is true and if he did what he claims that he did. Maybe you need to consider the claims of Jesus because you're coming out of an irreligious background. That's the case with some of us as well, for sure. Some of us run away from Jesus through the veneer of religion, and some of us run away from Jesus in much more open ways through literally saying, I want nothing to do with this, and maybe you're here tonight because someone invited you and you wanted them to stop pestering you, or you wanted to make your girlfriend or your boyfriend happy, or your spouse happy, or you just happened to wander in because you had a really a really cruddy week. I don't know. But you just happen to be here on a night where we're in a particular section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is explicitly asking you, you individually tonight, to respond to him in the right way. If you're going to call him a lunatic, then just call him a lunatic. If you're going to call him a liar, then own it. But if you're going to see him rightly, the Bible asks you to see him as the Lord, as the Lord of the universe and the Lord of your life right this very minute. This passage is actually broken down for us in three very neat sections. And the way I want to break it down is by thinking of it in terms of Lewis's analogy for mere Christianity. We see in these verses three different responses to Jesus. We see responses from his family, from his foes, and from his followers. His family calls him a lunatic. Imagine that, by the way. Some of you probably have experience with that, knowing a little bit about some of you. Um, His family calls him a lunatic... His foes call him a liar, but his followers call him Lord. And so we want to look at those three responses tonight just for the next few minutes. And I want you to be thinking throughout about what you think about Jesus and how you're going to respond to him. So those are the three points, but let me just sum it up like this. The right response to Jesus, according to Christianity, according to the scriptures, the right response to Jesus is to obey him as Lord. The right response to Jesus is to obey him as Lord. And let's look at how these different people in the scenes presented for us here respond to Jesus. First, we see his family in verse 20. His family comes. We see there in 20 that Jesus goes back to the house that has kind of become his home base. And again, the crowds gather so that they can't even eat. Things are so crazy. And when his family hears about it, they try and seize him because they're saying he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. So his family's response, at least at this point, is to call him a lunatic. You know, Jesus is still really, really popular. It's standing room only wherever Jesus is. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. His teaching is amazing and authoritative. People want to be around him. And his family has sort of watched this, we can imagine, at somewhat of a, pro- of a close range with a little bit of proximity to him. And they've been curious as to what exactly Jesus is up to. And hereby, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3 in Mark, we find out that they've decided, you know what, we need to extricate Jesus from the situations that he continues to put himself in. We need to make sure that he sort of just gets a little bit of a breather because he's acting like a nutcase. He's acting like a crazy person. They say he's out of his mind, verse 21. Now, it's probably not anything um, really ugly or nefarious or sinister that his family is thinking here. They don't hate Jesus. I mean, they love Jesus. He's their brother. He's their son. And, and they probably are thinking to some degree the way like a modern celebrities' parents might think of them. You know those child actors that become famous at very early ages and then they turn like 18, 19, 20 and it just becomes a train wreck, right? And it happens to be in the tabloids all the time. I think about, you know, like Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears, whoever. I don't really know these people very well, I can assure you. I had to look that up, actually. But these people are, you know, they're, they're an embarrassment. They they just go nuts, sort of in the public eye. And, and oftentimes their family just is like, God, can we just, let's just get this person back home. Sometimes their family's all for it, which is even worse. But oftentimes their family's like, look, this person's going nuts. Let's, let's get them out of out of target range. Get them away from the paparazzi and just let them take a deep breath for a while. That's kind of how you can imagine what's going on here with... Jesus and his family. They're not not evil. They don't hate him. They actually love him, and that's why they're sort of wanting him to just take a step back, to to take a breather. And you know, if you're going to be honest with yourself tonight, just for a few minutes, you should at least understand that um, in our culture today, probably very similar to the culture that Jesus lived in a couple of thousand years ago, people don't typically respond too well to zealousness in religion i mean a lot of people are pretty okay with religion if you're just you know if it's just a part of your life but if you're like a sold out zealot for christianity or whatever religion you follow islam whatever it is that is that is something that is not really thought well of in modern contemporary culture And that's kind of what you can imagine Jesus' family thinking here. They're thinking, you know, it's fine for you to be a a rabbi and for you to be a Jewish teacher, but you're getting a little bit too crazy. Your zeal is a little bit out of control. Just turn it down a few notches, Jesus. Jesus. And his family will even go so far here as to say that that he's out of his mind. He's, He's kind of going nuts. So that's one response that we see early on in Mark's gospel. Not from people that are far away from Jesus, but from people that are close to him. His family themselves say he is out of his mind. Let's get him out of this situation. Now there's a lot we can learn from this, but let me just say one thing at this point. Mere affection is not enough in your response to Jesus. Can I say that again? Mere affection for Jesus is not enough in your response to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus' family loves him. They feel great affection for him. But in this instance, they're simply wrong about him, despite their affection. They love him, but they don't understand the truth about him. And one thing you have to understand if you want to respond rightly to Jesus, or if you even want to know how to respond rightly to Jesus, is that you must know the truth about Jesus if you are going to follow him. And here's the truth. He is no lunatic. He knew exactly what he was saying and what he was doing. And the question being pressed upon all of our hearts here tonight is, do we believe him? Do we take what he says as true? It's very common in a city like ours to approve of Jesus, to feel sentimental and nostalgic about Jesus, to think that you have the same conservative values as Jesus, to put a nice little bumper sticker on the back of your car, let's keep Christ in Christmas. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But that alone does not equate being one of his disciples. Mere affections and fuzzy warm feelings about Jesus and Bible stories and church does not mean that he is your Lord. That's what his family had to come to terms with. But beginning in verse 22, the ante gets upped. We see secondly that his foes respond to him and they respond to him as a liar. Really, Probably this is exactly the sort of thing that his family was wanting to avoid by trying to get him out of the situation because we see in the very next verse that the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they say, he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's another word for Satan. He's possessed by Satan himself. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, these scribes are guys that we haven't seen yet at this point. These are the professional theologians. These are the PhDs. These are the guys that ran the publishing houses of the day. These are the scholars. These are the men that had forgotten more about the Bible than most of us will ever know. These guys know their stuff. And word about Jesus of Nazareth has gotten out. And so these guys have been sent on sort of a a reconnaissance mission from Jerusalem to Capernaum to find out what's going on with this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And they make a very, very interesting judgment about him. Notice they don't deny the authenticity of any of his miracles, of any of his exorcisms, of any of the amazing things he's doing. They don't quite try to question those. They don't say he didn't really heal that guy's withered hand. It was, it was magic. They don't say anything like that. They say, oh yeah, he's doing amazing things, but then they question his identity. They say he's doing these things, but it's not with a divine power. No, he's doing these things with a satanic power. It's by the prince of demons himself that he casts out demons. Now that is quite a charge. They're saying that he is not just a liar. They are saying he is the liar. The devil himself. And Jesus responds to them beginning in verse 23. We read that he speaks to them in parables and really Even though it's parabolic, it's not that difficult to understand. There's two different parts of his response. The first thing he says is that they're being logically contradictory. Look at what he says there at the end of 23 and in 24 and 25 and 26. How can Satan cast out Satan, right? This wasn't Abraham Lincoln, by the way. This is Jesus. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. What's Jesus saying? He's saying... Do you understand what you're getting out here? You're saying that I'm fighting against my own team if you're saying that I'm possessed by Satan. You know, uh, I've coached Nate's six and under YMCA basketball team for a couple of seasons now, and it is a blast. It's mildly organized chaos almost every week. And one thing, as you can imagine, that regularly happens when you're coaching six-year-olds in basketball is that there's a lot of traveling, and then when there's not traveling, a kid might have a breakaway, and he manages to put about six dribbles together, and he shoots a layup and makes it, and everybody goes crazy, but it was the wrong basket. Or if you've coached soccer, you've seen that happen many times with your kids. They score the only goal of the season, but it's, it's an own goal. It's on their own goalkeeper. That's basically what the teachers of the law are accusing Jesus of doing here. They're, they're accusing Jesus of intentionally scoring an own goal, a goal against his own team, of intentionally shooting at the wrong basket, of intentionally sabotaging his team. Jesus is saying, that makes no sense. If I'm possessed by demons, why am I casting out demons? If I'm under the authority of Satan, why am I trying to subvert the authority of Satan? Your argument is logically contradictory. And then in 27, he tells them what he's really up to. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Satan is the strong man. And Jesus, rather than being possessed by Satan, is the one who is binding Satan. Jesus has tied Satan's hands behind his back and shoved cotton in his mouth, so that he, or let's say a sock, a sock in his mouth so that he can't talk, and blindfolded him and kicked him down into the basement, and he is ransacking Satan's apartment. Jesus is saying, I'm not here working with Satan or under the power of, under the power of Satan. No, I am wiping Satan and his army off the face of this earth. My kingdom came to overwhelm and overcome the kingdom of the evil one. So to call Jesus a liar, to call Jesus the liar, is a, it's a logically contradictory thing to do. And it's also, frankly, a very, very dangerous thing to do. Because Jesus adds three scary and serious verses here in 28 through 30. He's told the Pharisees that they're logically contradicting themselves when they accuse him of being demon-possessed. And then he says, truly I say to you, every sin will be forgiven the children of man. All blasphemies that they utter. Man, that's a beautiful gospel promise, and that's true. The gospel is true. All sins will be forgiven, except one. Now, that's a scary thing to hear especially in a place like Christchurch where we talk about grace and forgiveness all the time. It's, it's a little bit scary, but we need to take Jesus at his word. He says there in verse 29, whoever blasphemes, that's to accuse people of acting like God. It's to, it's to accuse people of taking on only the, the name and the power that only God owns himself. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Never. And that's emphatically put in the original language, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus says that it is possible to commit a sin, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and put yourself beyond the cause of forgiveness. It's a sin that cannot be pardoned. And that's something we just got to take one second and think about. As you might imagine... There's been a lot of ink spilt on what exactly that means, on what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Um, And so I want to just take a second here. This is relevant, but somewhat of a parenthesis and and tell you what it means. Um, Some people have said that it means uh, subverting the authority of the senior leader in your church. Talk about abusive That's a terrible thing to say. It's not disagreeing with the senior pastor. (laughs) You're welcome to disagree with me and I'm going to love you, but I will never accuse you of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit if you disagree with me. Some have said that, though. Some have said that it's murder, that that's the unpardonable sin. Some have said that it's homosexuality, that that's the unpardonable sin. Some have said that it's unbelief that that's the unpardonable sin. And that actually makes a little bit of sense. After all, uh, those who refuse to believe, the scripture says, will not be forgiven and will not be pardoned. But none of those things really hits home. And none of those really fits with the context here. Uh, the, uh, the, The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the quote, unpardonable sin, is it's more than mere unbelief. Actually, it's not that difficult to figure out in this context. Here's what it is. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to... It's to consciously and deliberately attribute the work of God to the work of Satan himself. And to do that consistently until the day that you die. It's to clearly and self-consciously say that the divine work of Jesus is actually satanic and demonic. Practically, uh, to commit this sin is to hear the gospel and to see the power of God and to be in the midst of grace and mercy that comes from God and to experience the love of Jesus and then to explicitly and knowingly and self-consciously say that that is the devil's work, the devil's message, and the devil's power. Fundamentally, it is to accuse Jesus of being Satan. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bobink. Uh, put it better than anyone, and at the risk of getting a little too theological here, let me just read this from him because it's outstanding. Here's what Bob Inc. wrote. The sin against the Holy Spirit has to consist in a conscious, deliberate, intentional blasphemy of the revelation of God's grace in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It consists in a conscious and deliberate attributing of what has clearly been perceived as God's work to the influence and activity of Satan, that is in a deliberate blaspheming of the holy spirit a defiant declaration that the holy spirit is the spirit from the abyss that the truth is a lie that christ is satan himself and i want you to notice that that's actually not something jesus accuses the pharisees of here at least not explicitly he threatens that they are on the verge of such a thing but he doesn't accuse them of it and I want to also just really briefly mention, because I know some of you who have been believers for some time and have thought about this idea before, oftentimes you might wonder if that's something that you've done, right? Have I committed the blasphemy? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And as many pastors have, I think, wisely put it, let me just answer that by saying this. If you're worried that you've committed that sin, that's proof that you haven't. If you're worried and feel guilt about possibly doing such a thing, then that is in itself evidence that you haven't done such a thing. Um, The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a a dangerous thing that those who are truly following Jesus cannot and will not ever do. So that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. If you want to talk about it more, talk to Alan. He's right here. Um, Let me just say real briefly by way of application, You know, we saw with Jesus' family response that mere affection for Jesus is not enough. And one thing we see here with the response of Jesus' foes, these religious teachers, is that theological knowledge about Jesus is not enough either. Mere affection for Jesus is not enough. You must also understand the truth and believe the truth. But liking to learn more about theology and memorizing parts of scripture and reading systematic theology, that in itself is not enough either to respond rightly to Jesus. In fact, the scriptures say again and again and again that acquiring theological knowledge and insight without acquiring love and and humility and grace alongside it is one of the most dangerous things in the world. And so... Be warned and listen as you continue to think about how you're going to respond to Jesus, that theological knowledge without love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus is, in fact, a very, very dangerous thing. So we see that his family accuses him of being a lunatic. His foes accuse him of being a liar. And then in verse 31, his followers, they call him Lord. Look at the passage again. His mother and his brothers are still out there saying, come on, Jesus, let's go. And a crowd is sitting around and they said to him, your brothers and your mothers are outside. They're looking at you. And Jesus says in verse 33, something amazing. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And keep in mind in that sort of society, family is everything. Family allegiance is everything. You're not first an air force pilot. You're not first a physician. You're not first a pastor. You're first a member of your clan, a member of your family. And yet Jesus says here, The people who are really my mother and my brothers, and you can read in there, my sisters, are the people that do the will of God. The people that make me and call me who I really am, their Lord. You see what Jesus is doing here is making a a stupendous claim, frankly. He is making a claim that in his mission, he is creating new family ties all by himself. He's creating a relationship and a connection between himself and other people that is even more important and even more fundamental than one's relation and connection to their own blood, to their own family. He's saying that the person who is truly going to respond to me rightly, the person that is truly going to be a part of my family, is the person that is going to obey. I mean, it's... Can't be any clearer. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Listen to me, friends. When you consider how you are going to respond to Jesus, the first question to ask yourself is not, was I born in the right kind of family? The first question to ask yourself is not, do I feel really warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus when I think about him. The first question to ask yourself is not even, do I understand theologically what Jesus taught? The first question to ask yourself is, do I obey him? And so let's ask ourselves that question. Do you obey Jesus? Because that is the fundamental asset of Jesus' disciples, of those who are truly and rightly connected to him. So have you obeyed him? You can't avoid the question that Jesus is pressing upon all of us. What does it mean to obey Jesus? Well, first and foremost, it means to believe the message that he proclaims. I mean, the first thing he says in Mark is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's not just good advice. That is a command from the Lord of the universe. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the first step in obedience. So have you done that? Have you seen yourself as someone who has turned away from God and rebelled against Him? In the fact that you act selfishly, in the fact that you put yourself above others, in the fact that you will fudge the truth to make yourself look better, in the fact that you wake up in the morning and first thing you typically think about is, what can I get out of this day for myself? All of us are sinners against God's will. All of us, by nature, are selfish. All of us are rebels. To repent and believe the gospel, you must understand and accept that that is true about you. And then you must see that Jesus, rather than condemning you, which he would be just to do, has come and died and taken the punishment on himself that you deserve for your rebellion. That's what the cross is all about. What Jesus is doing on the cross is taking the punishment for your sin, not his, because he didn't sin. Do you believe that? You believe that Jesus has done that for you, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you were smart, not because you had a lot of affection, but simply because he loves you and is gracious. It's the gospel. If you are going to obey Jesus and follow him, you must believe that that is true. And then you must repent. You must turn from your former way of living. You must say, no longer am I going to pretend to be the ruler of my own universe. Jesus is my king. I submit my allegiance to him. Have you done that? If you haven't, then tonight's the night to do it. If you're not sure, then tonight's the night to have that conversation. If you think you may have done it, but your life bears no reflection that that's the case, then perhaps you need to talk with me or someone else whom you trust. Do you obey Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and believed in the goodness of his gospel? Do you obey Jesus? Do you seek as a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, to try to do his will? And then when you mess up what you're bound to do, to ask him for forgiveness. Because he loves to forgive those who come to him and ask. The fundamental tenet of the one who is truly following Christ is that they do the will of God. I've been reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, second C.S. Lewis mentioned in the sermon. I've met my quota for the month. I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia out loud with Nate and Ainsley. They're my six-year-old and my five-year-old. And um, we just finished Prince Caspian, which is the fourth book. And if you haven't read any of the books, it's about these four kids that enter into a magical world called Narnia. And in this book, they're entering Narnia for the second time. But in Narnian time, a thousand years have passed. And they were kings and queens in Narnia the last time they were there. And the lion, Aslan, who is the supreme ruler of Narnia, was their friend and their guide. But when they come back the second time in Prince Caspian, it's a thousand years later and Aslan hasn't been heard of since. And they haven't, they've been forgotten. They're the stuff of legend by the time they re-enter, And one of the most fascinating things about the story as it progresses is that it presents different characters and how they respond to these children who are the kings and the queens of the land. And more importantly, how they respond to Aslan, who by this time is just seen as a fairy tale from somewhere far across the Eastern Sea. There's a dwarf who basically thinks it's just a bunch of, as he says, gobbledygook. It's not true, it's a nursery rhyme. There's a king who's decided that although he knows it's true, he's going to subvert the truth so that he can acquire more and more power for himself. And then there's the many talking animals in the land of Narnia who still believe in Aslan and who are waiting his return. They know who their true king is. One of the brilliant things that Lewis is doing in Prince Caspian is in another way asking the same question that Mark is asking all of us here. What do you think about Jesus? Do you see him as your king? And are you willing to follow? That's what he calls you to. And let me close by saying that following Jesus is the best possible life for you. It doesn't mean an end to your suffering. It doesn't mean that everything's going to get hunky-dory tomorrow, but you're definitely worshiping someone. It might as well be the only one who can actually fill the hole in our hearts that we long to have filled, God himself. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our allegiance. You were made to follow him. So follow by faith. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that you call us to believe the gospel and to turn from sin and repent and to trust you. We thank you, God, that you tell us again and again and again in the scriptures that we need you. We can't help ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't remedy what is broken and messy in our lives. We need you to do that for us. And so we ask, oh God, tonight that you would help us to believe and to obey and to turn to King Jesus and place our lives in his hands and claim him as our Lord. God, we so irregularly do that, and so we pray that you would help us to consistently trust you as Messiah, as Supreme King who loves us and bled for us. Help us to do that even tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.